Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is someone that needs no introduction, so I welcome you, Misha Mansour from Periphery. Misha Mansour, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. It's strange how, despite like, you know, this being like downtime for a lot of people, how uh, I feel like my schedule has been a bit overwhelming lately. I didn't think that this would be downtime for you. I totally, totally, a hundred percent thought it would be. This is that was that was my first mistake. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Was there any point where it was downtime-ish, and then you realized this shit's going to last a long time, may got to get to work? No, not really. Just because I think at first, when we didn't really know what was going on, because I have so many different ventures and, you know, certain certain times, actually, there will be times where there's just less work all around, and then it always seems to converge, <laughs> like with all the yep. companies and projects at once, no matter... How hard I try to plan around that uh, to never happen, it always seems to, to work out that way. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, with the the unknown of how this was going to affect the businesses and whatnot, um, you know, we, for example, saw uh, quite a surge in sales with the GGD stuff. As you can imagine, you know, people yep. are stuck at home, you know, software recording, all that kind of stuff does pretty well. And I think a lot of uh, other companies in that sector we're doing quite well. So we're like, okay, well, let's, let's push this. So we were, I, we were putting a lot of work into that. Cause we're like, we don't know how long that'll last. If there'll maybe be a massive dip eventually, there's some sort sort uh, some sort of bubble that will burst, which may still be the case. I don't know. We, we just kind of went right, right to work with that. And with everything else, we're just trying to find ways to sort of make the most of the, the situation. So no, there hasn't really been downtime, and I don't really do well with downtime, to be honest. I'm I'm pretty bad at it. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't expect you to have taken downtime. I kind of was expecting you to say what you just said, uh, and I can confirm, man. Like Riff Hard and URM had a surge when this all happened too. Yeah, of course. It's just for the same reasons, and I've been thinking too, just as you that. There might come a time where the bubble does burst, where the economic realities become, I guess, way more widespread. And so trying to get as much done now as possible before that hits. And I kind of feel like it might. I'm expecting it to. Yeah. Well, same here, because, you know, it's like it's been good and it's like, you know, if it's too good to be true, usually it's... (laughs) You know, kind of waiting for the the other shoe to drop there, and um, sort of prepping for that as well, because might as well be prepared. Yeah. How early into this did you realize it was going to be a real thing? Man, that's a tough one. My my ex, who I still live with, she's still one of my best friends. She's a nurse, and she she works at um, Children's Hospital, and she was just getting like all the information up front. So we were getting a lot of this information as it was coming out and it it was changing, you know, people were still, and we're still figuring stuff out about it. So there, there's a lot of stuff where just, you know, week by week we were sort of learning things. And yeah, I think maybe like a month in, I was like, Oh my God, like this, I, I just don't see the, any path where this sort of just disappears. Like there's just nothing, no evidence to show that it won't be around for a while, you know? And, and that continues to be the case. Like, for example, you know, coronavirus, there have been several coronaviruses and they've been around for a while. So to have a vaccine that solves this would be a novel vaccine. Now, 
human beings are, are great uh, in times of, uh, of need. Like, you know, necessity being the mother of invention has, has created a lot of really clever inventions. But this will be the first of its type, effectively. And it will also be sort of rushed to the public uh, in record time if it's, if it's available to the public anytime soon. So it's just a lot of novel stuff that we're kind of counting on to return to any semblance of normalcy. You know, and even finding out that, for example, the, um, the antibodies only last three months. So the herd immunity thing doesn't really work currently because you're immune for about three months and then you can catch it all over again. So it's, just, it's you know, it's this thing that's just been dynamically shifting. And I don't know, I, you know, I don't know where we're going to be at in a few months. I didn't know we were going to be here now. I, I don't know if you guys had any semblance of where we'd be by now when it first started, but it's like, I didn't think we'd be here. I did think it was going to be serious right at the beginning, but I was figuring that by August or September, it would be kind of getting back to normal, kind of. Yeah, I was hoping that. Yeah. But <laughs> Somewhere around May or June, I started thinking more in terms of 18 months. Yeah. I mean, this is the new normal to some degree. And even, you know, I've been thinking like, and there have been people doing studies on, on things like this, like sort of the long-term sociological and psychological impacts. Like if, if people live a certain way, let's say for 18 months, 24 months, it may fundamentally change the way that they interact. For example, like, like there may be less close contact. Maybe, maybe it'll just be certain sorts of people. Like certain people will be very glad to be like hugging and handshaking and, and all that stuff again. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's a large sect of people that just kind of don't touch us. But if you look at, for example, like, um, like Japanese I'm okay culture, with that. right? right? I, I'm, I'm okay with it <laughs> totally too. Cool with that. <laughs> but you look at Japanese culture, you know, they've been wearing masks. Like a lot of those Asian countries deal with these sort of uh, these situations and, and they're like better prepared for it. You know, they're not shaking hands they're like bowing all the time there's there's a lot of respect for like personal space there and it's like oh i guess that might be a byproduct and it may be something that we adopt which i don't think is the worst idea either you know so uh it'll be interesting to see what else kind of gets adopted as a result of this yeah i completely agree with you and what i think also is that a lot of stuff from the past that was frivolous that people didn't realize they didn't need won't come back. Like going to restaurants too much, for instance, things like that. I think it's going to be harder to snap back into that. Movie theaters were already on the way out. Yeah. So uh, I think a lot of the a lot of things that were already happening are just being accelerated. Like so for movie theaters. At least where I'm at, you can't do that. Like everything's closed and any dining is sort of uh just patio only, you know, like it, yep. it's outdoors. And one of the things is the transmission rate outdoors is extremely low. So it actually is pretty low risk. So this is, you know, these are the ways that people are sort of adapting um, because people do want to go out. And I mean, like, you know, this, this in inevitably leads us to the, the, the question, you know, how, how necessary are live shows of certain sizes and whatever, you know, I know I definitely miss playing live shows. I know that people miss going to live shows, but to what end and to what degree of risk do they miss going to live shows? It's going to be interesting to see how that sort of comes together because socially distanced live shows or maybe, you know, missing a, a pretty integral part of what makes a, at least like, <laughs> you know, a monuments show or a periphery show kind of fun, you know? 
is like the mosh pits and like people literally being on top of one another <laughs> packed like, uh, you know, sardines in a can in a room. So it's like this is pretty much going to be the opposite. And we've done shows where where we played to a seated audience, you know, and they were so packed and close together. But the vibe is completely different. And if I'm entirely honest, I don't like it as much. More like a concert than a show. Yeah. Or like a clinic or something like that, you know, a recital. Um, it's yeah, it's definitely got a little bit of that vibe, and it's uh, it's tough. Even if people are into it, it's just tough. I mean, it's just directly compared to like say you know a mosh pit going the whole show. It's just not the same. I'm sure uh, Brownie, you can relate to this, but you feed off of that. You directly, it's a very palpable energy that you feed off of. If that's going, you're going ham. If that, if the crowd's a bit more subdued, maybe you're focused a little more on playing better. Um, that's the way it works in my head. So it's going to be interesting to see if they become a bit more recital-ish, as you were saying. <laughs> One thing that I think is interesting, though, is you built your career online. So I feel like if anyone is suited for this, it would be someone like you or anyone from the generation of bands that got big online first and then kind of went out into the world, as opposed to the more traditional way where it's the other way around. Sure. Where with live shows first and then everything else. Well, we've also cultivated that a little bit because, you know, we, we had a first a taste of this, this oversaturation of the market when, you know, uh, streaming became a very big thing and, you know, income from, from CDs just basically dropped to nothing. Right. So the album income just dropped. Everyone went out on tour. So we started to pull back on touring, which, you know, the strategy being let's create scarcity and it, the effects would be twofold. One, we wouldn't sort of overstay our welcome. And two, we would make sure, you know, it's a competitive market. We'd make sure that if, you know, we're one of the tours that are out there, people are coming to our tour because, there are other bands that might hit, you know, the same market two, three times a year, but we're hitting them once every year and a half to two years. So we're the show that you pick. And that worked out pretty well. But it also means that we could take more time away because us not playing a show for a year and a half in the same market is kind of par for the course. Whereas a band that was, you know, hitting that market every three or four months, now that's a that's a pretty stark difference. And, you know, they were probably a lot more reliant on that that income because I don't think anyone is strategically trying to, to hit those markets that much. But for a lot of bands, that's how they paid their bills and they need to make their rent. So, you know, they're, they're going out on tour. What I think is interesting about this is that I've known or been told, it's been hammered into my head for like 20 years to have multiple income streams. Yep. So that's not a new idea. The no. thing is that uh, some people listened and some people didn't. And I think the people who did listen are figuring it out a little bit more easily right now. I think that even if it's one of those, I guess, uh, tough pills to swallow if what you want is to just be in a band and have that band be your sole source of income and just be that dude that tours and lives that life. If that's all you want, it's hard to accept that you need to do five different things. But I think that the people in the mid-2000s who just, we're like, all right, this is reality. Right now, are set up to make the most of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I agree, but you know, it's it's tough because if there's anything of this highlighted, it's that just in general, diversifying your income can protect you. I I'll I'll reiterate this every time. I got very lucky 
because it just so happened that this situation, this pandemic or whatever, I mean, something that just came out of nowhere. No one could have predicted it, whatever, right? So it came out of nowhere and wreaked havoc. So there's people who are very, very smart businessmen who made very, very smart decisions and then it destroyed their industry. And there's nothing they could have done about it or prepared for it. It was just they were in the wrong industry. Yep. Luckily, I'm in enough sectors that didn't get affected or that actually got that so far have had like it's had a positive impact on them. There are there are certain things that suffered. But just because I've got like so many different income streams, it's OK if some aren't so hot. And then these other ones and and, and if you spread out through sectors, it, it sort of protects you. So in general, you know, it used to be like I wanted to have income income streams because I just knew that realistically expecting to make a living from a band with the kind of music I'm playing and with my goals in music was just unreasonable. It was just not a realistic thing that would ever happen. And if I'm wrong, great. <laughs> I'll be good. That's great. But if I'm right, then I'll be glad I prepared. But now I'm actually looking at it more like it also is job security because there are things like this. Like you could be that guy who was making, you're crushing it, just touring. And you actually made that work. And now you have nothing because that was one of the sectors that got completely just demolished by this. Right. Um, and it was through no fault of your own or bad planning or anything like that. So now I've kind of shifted to like, you know, the multiple income streams just as a general thing to protect yourself and give yourself a little bit of job security in a world that's a lot more unpredictable than I think we give it credit for. Well, I think that that's the key here is that the world is unpredictable. Um, maybe two years ago, Finn and I started thinking that there's a black swan coming, uh, you know, obviously we didn't know it was going to be this or when it would hit. We didn't know if it would be five years or five months or whatever. But we were just figuring we've been alive long enough to know that shit gets crazy every once in a while. Yeah. And it's been a minute since it got crazy. And it's been really good for too long. So at some point here, something's going to happen because it has to. So that's when we started really, really preparing ourselves for whatever would come. And I think that if you're not thinking about that, regardless if you're the dude who crushes it in one field, one sector, if you're not thinking like that, you better be really lucky. Yeah. <laughs> basically. And I mean, that was something, again, it's like you, you might have thought you were doing everything right and, you know... Some assholes fucked it up for everybody else. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. and that's all it takes, really. So, so I think it's very easy to to forget how fragile your situation is. This has definitely sort of put that to the front of my mind, where I'm like, okay, you know, things are good right now, but there's nothing to say that there isn't a development. You know, maybe I'm talking to you guys in three months, and I've lost everything. You know, I'm I'm struggling not to be homeless. And all I can do is just prepare. You know, I have plans. I have I have actively thought about what I will do if, if you know if shit hits the fan. It's like kind of five different you phases. You got the bunker ready. I, I'm not quite at the bunker level, but like uh, because I think I'll I, <laughs> I think I'll be ill prepared for that. <laughs> I think I'll probably just <laughs> die at that point. <laughs> but like, uh, but everything everything short of that, more like if I were to lose everything, you know, what the the plans are, how I can protect myself. Uh, you know, how, how I'll sort of uh, liquidate the assets and whatever to sort of prolong the amount of time that I don't need to be homeless, <laughs> you know, um, 
but yeah, it's like several, several phases sort of looking at, you know, of severity, uh, looking at how I would do it. And, and it may seem like a really morbid exercise, but I think it's no. important to keep them in the back of your mind and to also be prepared. I think if that happened, that would suck, but it would also suck like a hundred times more if I was totally unprepared and didn't think there was ever a possibility of that happening. And now if it does happen, I'll be like, okay, well this really sucks, but I have a plan, you know? And that that's comforting to me. There's a huge difference between <laughs> yeah. those two. Yeah. This is where we're at now, which is which is such an interesting development because this is something I didn't predict. I was actually kind of worried about that. I and, and it's a very good point. I was like, man, if something happens, I'll have a bunch of gear. I'll have to sell it like a massive loss or whatever. Or even if it's not a loss, just get like a fraction of what it's worth. But gear is up right now. Like because the people who have money have money. And then there's also very attractive loans going around, which is why luxury stuff is up and mortgages, you know, anyone who didn't lose things or anyone who either remain neutral or is making more money now, not only has that, but then has access to extremely low rates for loans because they're, you know, everyone's trying to stimulate the economy. So it's a win-win if you had money and if you didn't get negatively affected by that. And then what do you do? You spend money and then you'll buy things that are luxuries so nice guitars, gear, all that stuff like that, that's selling right now. So it's this, again, it's, it's this weird, uh, right now being the key term, right, right, right now, right now is a very important key term because yeah, you're <laughs> right. Could be two months, could be less and it all flips around. And like, you know, these things are very, very hard to predict. My dad's an economist, uh, though he's a, he's a, a, a macroeconomist and <laughs> one of his favorite sayings <laughs> just so true just explains like how unintuitive uh, a, a science it is he's like you know uh, economists are able to predict the past with 90 percent accuracy <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to put it <laughs> and uh and the way you know you know because i think people always look to economists to try to sort of predict the future and one of the best ways he sort of explained is you know you have to think of an economist as a, a an economy doctor so you can do a checkup and they'll look at the economy like, yeah, things seem to be going well. And then you have a crazy thing that happens, you know? And it's like, yeah, I mean, just like you might not know that you'd get sick or get cancer or get this or that, you know? Like, yeah, we didn't see it coming. But now that you know you have it, you go to the doctor, you get treated. So now economists are the people that you want to treat the thing. And they can, that's what they're very good at. But the prediction side is very difficult. So anyone who claims to know what's happening is lying. <laughs> but... At least I'd hope that smart people are the ones fixing the problems when they pop up. Do you consider yourself an optimist in general, life-wise? Oof, that's a, that's a complicated question. I think I'm pragmatic. Is a, is a, a, a pragmatic optimist. Uh, you know, realist, whatever you'd call it. I, I account for people and the nature of things and history, you know. Uh, I think that if you look at history, it's hard to be like sort of purely optimistic because you do see the patterns of human behavior. But uh, but I also do think that if you look at history, things do tend towards balance, balance eventually. And that eventually, you know, with a capital E, because, uh, you know, it's like a pendulum swing. So you have things going one way and then like, you know, obviously it will do an overreaction the other way, but eventually sort of swings towards the center. I think one of the, the, the best ways I've ever heard the advent of the internet described is as sort of like a time compressor, you know? It just made progress and things happen so much faster. So what I would hope and what I would imagine, maybe this is a bit of the optimistic side of me, is that it would make those pendulum swings 
even if they are extreme, which we see nowadays, it's a very divisive time uh, to, to be alive. But like maybe it also means that it will swing faster and reach the center faster. But yeah, I, I mean, I think that's sort of I don't know what you you'd uh, peg me as there. Well, I think as a as a human, it's impossible to be 100 percent impartial and just fact data driven. So even if you are a very pragmatic person, I think you still would lean one way or the other and use the facts to either paint a pessimistic or an optimistic picture for yourself. I think that that's just human nature. I, I just I think it's really hard to be 100% cold and detached. I just don't think we're wired that way. We can get pretty close to it, but I just don't think we can ever be 100% that way and so and then also even if you are data driven you know you can use the data to create a positive or a negative outcome depending on yeah. your outlook and how you approach things so i think that's that's why i'm wondering because when going into something like this you can look at the data and uh look at ways to make the best of it and believe that there's a way to make the best of it or you can look at the data same data and see just as many things that are fucked up, but tell yourself it's too fucked up. Yeah. I mean, I, I see what you're getting at there. And I think if it gets to that point, then yeah, I would definitely be the optimist and maybe the opportunist as well. Because, I mean, you see this all the time where something shifts, it destroys a lot of the way things were, destroys the status quo for a lot of, a lot of people and, and industries. Uh, and you have people who sort of adapt and those who innovate. Uh, and then you have those who sort of stick to their guns and hope for the best. And generally speaking, you know, those who adapt and innovate tend to be able to work through it. So there are a lot of things that suck that happen in life constantly. Um, and I do tend to try not to dwell on those things and see if there's any opportunities or if there's any, any other angles that can be worked to your advantage, you know, uh, in, in those situations and, and sort of ways to look at things. I think it's part of the reason I've been lucky enough to be successful in music is because we've been able to take that perspective on a lot of stuff. Um, when we've seen a lot of people, you know, the music industry has changed so many times since I've even entered it and obviously was changing before then too. And you see that you see the, 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 the companies and the people and the bands, labels and whatever that adapted and the ones that didn't and the ones that popped up with brand new business models. Cause they're like, Hey, things are different now, you know, to adopt that point of view, you'd almost have to be an optimist. Yeah. It's, I think, I mean, I don't know what it's like in other industries cause I don't, I have not in other industries and never really been in them. But I think that because music changes so quickly, we have an over-exaggerated or just a really uh, close up look at people who do or don't adapt because that's there. There's no long term stability in this unless you can adapt. And so we're, whereas I think in some career paths, typically you could stay in it 20, 30 years doing the same thing, maybe only changing jobs once or twice. We see that this shit shifts every few years and some people either figure it out or don't. And those tend to be the people who we still know 10 or 15 years down the line. Right, so right. it's in our, it's in our face all the time that you have to adapt. I think. I imagine a lot of industries are like this, especially with the advent of the internet, you know, uh, and direct sales 
It's the reason why you know both uh, Horizon Devices and uh, Get Good Drums are very lean companies. You know, we don't have many employees. We we keep it very very lean because we can. That was not a business model that you could have uh, before. Sort of uh, internet marketing and uh, people were even that comfortable with buying stuff online. You know, there was a point in time where people were not that comfortable putting their information online. Now in the age of Amazon, everything being direct to customer, that's, that's a complete paradigm shift, which we can take advantage of. So that allows these very lean companies to exist. And now you see a lot of sort of more bloated companies and old school companies that have a lot of employees and a lot of overhead and office space and all that, that are like, how do I get into that (laughs) without like firing everyone or completely reworking the business model? Uh, because it's very desirable, but it's just from a different era. Um, and you see some co- companies adapting. You see other ones kind of struggle or like maybe they're just just the way they're set up makes it very difficult to adapt to that. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if every sort of or if a lot of sort of jobs and sectors out there were going through something similar to what the uh, the, the music industry is, especially like business and art and, and things like that. I wonder if it changes as quickly, though historically i mean right now definitely but i wonder if like if it's one of those things where you can say that it changes every three years or something yeah you know i I don't know and this is kind of what i was talking about about like the internet just being this time compressor just makes everything change and everything move at a pace that that is unlike anything we've ever seen before it's like we're, we're going through the same changes but instead of them happening every 10 or 15 years are happening every three years, you know, just because of how connected everyone is, how much faster it allows things to, to happen. So I guess uh, the big difference is you can't ever let yourself settle into anything. Whereas maybe in the past you could, even though you knew it would change at some point in the future, I feel like now if you get too comfortable with one way of doing things, you're setting yourself up for disaster. I think that's very astute. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think that you can ever rest on your laurels, especially now. I mean, generally, I was taught not to do that, but like I think now it's, you, it's something you can't it's afford. It's life or to death. Do. It really is. And, and you see these things sort of change and, and people disappear. And this is why, as I say, I prepare, I, I always prepare for the worst. I have it in the back of my head. Because it may just be that I'll turn into old man yells at cloud in no time. You know, I'll be like, what? It only took five years. And now I'm already there. <laughs> I don't get these crazy kids and all their, their stuff that's going on. You know, so uh, there, there is an awareness of that, you know. I don't think that planning for the worst is a negative thing. I have always kind of planned for it, too. And I remember all throughout my life, people telling me I was being negative by thinking about that. And uh, I never agreed i never thought it was a negative thing because like you said earlier it's a hundred times worse to get sideswiped by something than to see it coming or at least be prepared relatively speaking when it hits i, th- I think there's a distinction between being prepared and being consumed by it. <laughs> like if it's all you're thinking about, yes and you're it's it's not allowing you to enjoy the good things then yeah that's probably bad but to be prepared i don't think it's ever bad to be prepared for something Also, if you're consumed by it, you can kind of help manifest it, too. Of course. It's not practical, I think, to be consumed by it. No, no, I I, I agree completely. So I'm not consumed by it. It is something that I think is worth thinking about. I'd encourage everyone to think about it because it really doesn't take that much time or, or thought to put a little plan together. 
you know, and this this whole thing just highlights how fragile this seem this sense of balance. It's, it's not even a, a real sense of balance. You know, it's just it's totally fake. <laughs> and how fragile it is, and and how easy it is to disrupt it, especially with how interconnected everything is globally. Like this, this is one of the things that the whole world had to deal with. You know, and you're like, yeah, well, it's a disease that spreads. But even the 2008 crisis, that because we're so interconnected and so uh, financially interlinked, like that affected the whole world too. So, you know, this this sense of balance is is kind of fake. <laughs> it's not really there. Yeah. I've kind of always felt like it's a house of cards. Yeah, it is. It is. And I, I could never shake that feeling. I don't know. I could never tell myself that it was, that anything is actually stable in this life, except for the fact that it's unstable. Right. <laughs> so on a practical day-to-day level, with as much stuff as you've got going on and have had going on, uh, how do you make sure that you're not spreading yourself thin or not, I guess, giving everything the attention it needs? Uh, that is something I'm still learning. <laughs> it's one of those things. I talk about this sometimes. I know that you guys can relate to this. So I'm asking. <laughs> I mean, like, this is one of those things they don't teach you. And I mean, I get why. Most people end up in a job where you're supposed to be somewhere at a certain time and you can leave at a certain time and you can usually leave your work at work. We blur the lines with everything. And especially when I consider, you know, I, I had this this kind of uh, disgusting realization recently, which was like, I think I might technically qualify as retired because I was thinking, I was like, if I, if I just got handed $50 million or something like that, like what would change about my life? And I'm like, I don't think I would. I think my days would be the same. I would just have more. I'd have like crazier cars or something, or like a nicer place. Uh, and I'd invest most of it. So like, it would just be kind of the same. And I was like, okay, so this is, this is basically it. And now I just have to manage this. Um, and it's weird when you like what you do because you can overwork yourself like crazy when, when you enjoy what you do and then you get stressed and you get burnt out and you don't want to do it anymore. And I've been through that cycle enough times. It's one of those things that's very hard to relate to people who haven't been through it, but everyone who's, you know, in this field and, and, and self-employed a thousand percent understands what I'm talking about because they've had to learn how to manage their time and find their ways to get some sort of routine or find their system. And no one teaches you this because most people don't end up in this situation. So I just was kind of thrust into this and like figuring out and being like, why am I stressed all the time? Why am I overworked? Why do I, why do, why do I always have too many projects I'm working on that all seem to be, you know, converging deadlines at the same time, you know, uh, despite my best efforts to plan them to, to, to not do that. Uh, and as I said, it's a learning process because it's very easy to overwork yourself and very easy to the biggest thing I think is learning to say no to things <laughs> once you can afford to is recognizing that you can afford to say no to things and then being okay with it, which is a bit of a mental shift when, you know, you probably got to this point by hustling constantly. <laughs> so is that, and then I, I think like just having a calendar and like just, or some way of knowing and being able to keep up and visually see what it is that you're getting into and trying to make sure you take a bit of time for yourself. No one can tell you to stop working and if it's fun, it's just we don't have these these hard lines. And actually, 
you know, as much as like a lot of people in these industries and a lot of self-employed people or people who want it are like, yeah, man, you're not in that nine to five rat race. What it's made me do is actually appreciate a lot of the good things about a nine to five. Like there are a lot of things that are very easy to take for granted, but the way that it will organize your life for you and will create a very clear distinction between work and, and play, I think is something that really can't be emphasized enough. Like that is, that is a really beautiful thing. <laughs> so of course, grass is always greener. And I'm not saying I regret what any of my choices or what I'm doing, but it's just, I recognize that that is actually a, a really massive benefit, which I will have to create for myself somehow. Is it guilt or fear? I've, I've been, I've been talking to my therapist about this. And, and one of the best things I've done, I think, you know, cause life is going generally well. I think I've always gone to a therapist when life was falling apart. And it's kind of nice to go to a therapist when my life isn't falling apart and I can like work on things that need to get worked on rather than just trying to fix problems so I don't kill myself or something, you know? And like, <laughs> these are the kind of things I'm addressing. I'm kind of realizing like the, it's, it's so fucked up because my, I'm sure you guys can relate to this. I wanted to design a life for myself. I love playing video games. I love having free time. I wanted to design a life for myself where I could make passive income and like do all these things. So I could have all the time in the world. I was like, I could make money playing video games all day, you know? And I went and created that for myself. And now if I ever play video games instead of working, I feel like the guiltiest piece of shit and I'm lazy and everyone else is working hard. And what the fuck is wrong with you? And I'm so hard on myself. And like, I'm saying this out loud. I'm aware of it intellectually, but it doesn't change emotionally that I feel like crap. Like if I just take a day, a lazy day and like try to play some video games and I end up in this like weird limbo where I'm like, I want to play a video game, oh, but I don't want to waste the next four hours. So then I end up doing nothing. Like I'm on like Facebook and, or I'm answering emails or I'm doing just random stuff, which is like half work and half not. And I'm like, ah, I could, I didn't even have to do that. I could have just played a video game. And now I feel doubly guilty. So it's a, it's a whole mess. There's, it's a mess in there. <laughs> yeah. I think it's because you always know what else has to be done. And you're always aware of it. And no matter what anybody says about relaxing or whatever, you're, you know that there's that thing or those 10 things that you could just be doing Yeah, that have to get done. And since this is this life is basically your own creation, just like it is for ours. Uh, we're not doing this for anybody else. How can we stop? It's our lives. As opposed to if you're in the nine to five situation, you basically have those limits imposed on you by something external. It's yeah. not your company. It's not your company. These are the hours, the end. How do you do that when it's something that you created for yourself? Yeah, it's 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 a t well, this is what I'm working on with the, the therapist. And it's also like trying to not feel that guilt because I do deserve time Good off, luck. you know, I know <laughs> it's a it's a it's a tough one. And I, you know, I think it comes a lot from the, the way I was raised and like sort of the importance of of working and not being lazy and, you know, feeling like you're you're being productive. But you end up in these like these spaces where you overwork yourself and it's just bad. You're not doing good work and you feel like crap all the time. And it's like I need to get better at taking breaks and sticking to them. Like if ever I go like take a little vacation somewhere and I don't have my guitar or like access to like, or if I feel like I can't work on something I'm supposed to be working on for my companies, like 
I just feel like I feel stuck. I feel like I, I can't wait to get back home. And it's like, that's not healthy. <laughs> Vacation is supposed to be a way to relax. It shouldn't be like somewhere where you're like feeling trapped and it's like, oh, can't wait to get back home so I can get to work, you know? And that's what it feels like a lot of the time for me. So, I, I, yeah, I've got a little bit of work to do. <laughs> do you think it's possible to be a successful entrepreneur and not be that way? Oh, I'm sure it is. I think one of the, you know, I think you one of the... You know anyone who's um, done it? <laughs> no, but I think one of the, one of the things, I, I think it's a bit of a fluid conversation. I, I think, you know, even the best people will still struggle with it, but it's just being aware of it and kind of having your, your coping mechanisms. Because, you know, one of the... the one of the most insightful things I think I heard from uh, from my last therapist was, um, you know, I think a lot of the qualities that got me here and the qualities that got you guys where you are, it was easy to justify the negative side of it or to ignore the negative side because of the positives. You're looking at, you know, how how like work focused you are and how passionate you are about these things. And it's like, yeah. And like because of that, I, I got where I am and like completely ignore that these are just multifaceted characteristics and traits. So they have good things, they have neutral things and they have bad things. And those bad things are affecting you negatively. Uh, but it's easy to ignore it when you have these sort of trophies or these things to show for the good side of it. Right. And one of the insightful things that my therapist said was like, you know, you can have the good, you, you don't need to have the bad with that. You can separate those. You can work out a way to get just those good things from it, which I never thought. I thought like, oh, well, you know, that's just, that's just the way it is. It's, it's this, you know, it's this double it's the price you pay. Yeah. It's the price you pay. And, so, and, and that's just the way it is. And, you know, kind of the idea that no, it doesn't have to be that way. You can just take the, you can learn to take the positives from it and learn to deal with the negatives or not let them affect you. Uh, and, and, and awareness is obviously the first step of that. So, Hey man, I'm working on it. <laughs> I can't tell you if it'll be successful or not, but I'm going to try. I think also, uh, as you get older, it's harder to justify the negative side of it because your priorities change. And especially when you've already achieved some of the things on your list, you're not consumed by those things quite as much. Uh, like you said, like in some ways you consider yourself in retirement and so now the job is to keep it going as opposed to when you were not even there yet. Yeah. Uh, and you had no career yet and were, you know, a dude on a forum who made his own music. You still had a lot more to prove. And so, I mean, I think it's easier to justify the negatives when you're at that point. Yeah, it is because you're hungry and you're working for it and, you know, but now it's like, okay, you're like, a lot of there's a lot of negative shit here and there's a lot of stuff i don't like a lot of, a lot of stuff i'm recognizing is is kind of causing some unnecessary friction so we can work on those things and it is tougher to ignore that stuff when you're seeing direct benefits of it you know and i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people go through this stuff but again there isn't really a rule book and there really isn't a guide that i'm aware of for people who choose this sort of path so it seems like a lot of people go through the same sort of patterns. Maybe they have to. I think I wouldn't be surprised if you guys are both as stubborn as I am. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm one of those guys. Yeah, I'm one of those guys <laughs> who sometimes just has to like for all the great advice in the world. Sometimes I just have to make the mistake for myself to learn like, oh, OK, yeah, I shouldn't ever do that again. You know, so maybe this is part of the journey is like you just got to kind of learn these things and look back on it for yourself. Be like, wow, like. 
yeah, I probably could cut that out you know? <laughs> or tweak this so that I'm not miserable. You know, it's a learning experience. I kind of feel like it's not a solvable problem, but it's an improvable problem. Yeah. Because I feel like in order to completely get rid of that negative side, you'd have to get rid of it, of the whole thing. Yeah, that's just not realistic. But yeah. I like the way you put that. It's it's not solvable because I think the three of us think of, you know, we're problem solvers. At the end of the day, that's like what we kind of get off on is solving problems, right? So it's like, this is one of those things that you can't solve and you kind of acknowledge it, but you improve it. And, and that's good enough. It's like, hey, we're making steps in the right direction. We know we'll probably be working on this for the rest of our lives and that's fine. You know, that's kind of the fun. Or, uh, or struggle. <laughs> yeah, it's, or a little, struggle it's, a, it's, it's a bit of both. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to me because, like, for instance, I took a vacation in December, first time in five years. <laughs> I made it about five days before I started to get antsy. But I had, like, primed myself for months to actually enjoy this thing. And I set up everything around it so that I could. So I worked myself ragged between October and December 13th. So then by the time I went on that vacation, the first five days, I was too tired to work. Yeah. But then as soon as I got my energy back, I didn't want to be on vacation anymore. Yeah. So I've been talking, I've been like kind of thinking about this. Uh, uh, Jake, Jake and, uh, and Mark and I have been kind of just discussing this. I actually think what, what would actually be vacation more than anything, and it, this is probably the hardest thing for me to do, would be actually disconnect for like some amount of time. Like I'm, I was thinking even like if I could like somehow disconnect for a week. That's why I went on a cruise. That's why I did that. Yeah. And I'd desperately be trying to get the Wi-Fi to work and paying the 50 bucks a day. It costs. You know, it's like, like that's that. what happened during the last cruise too. But no, no, I think it's more than just not having it be available. It takes like a conscious choice to like, no, like I'm yep. maybe like, maybe I don't take my phone, like something, something crazy like that and don't, you know, don't connect to the internet. That's giving me anxiety. It's giving me anxiety. And then it's also like, this thing is like, man, that would be amazing. And it's so unfathomable. I'd have to make so many plans. Like I'd have to let everybody know, like I'm basically dead for a week. You can't get in touch with me. And I'm kind of warming up to that idea. I just want to try it out. Like I actually think it would be like, I could just stay exactly where I'm at. I'm at. I mean, that would take a bit more willpower if I stayed exactly where I'm at. So maybe, but I wouldn't even need to travel far or anywhere exotic is my, is my point. It would be more about this mental state and this commitment to like not be on my phone, to not even have my phone. Like that's a crazy thought, but it's kind of sexy. So I think I might like mess with that. <laughs> October 12th, I'm going off grid for five days. Yeah, there you go. The only way that I can justify that for myself is to have a bunch of massive projects I'll launch like in the three weeks before that so that I can basically take the momentum of that and feel good. Uh, so yeah, like I started thinking about it a month ago and started planning for five days in October, basically. So yes, that's kind of what I think you're going to have to do is that's no, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Is like, is like, making an announcement and then probably all the little projects are going to be like, okay, well then this needs to get done. I'll be like, okay, cool. I'll make sure all this is done. And then I'll have five days where I won't be connected to the internet, you know, give yourself some wins before it. So like pick a date that you're going to do it and then schedule some things before it that you know are going to be home runs. 
so that you have a good feeling about it and you don't and you don't go into it feeling like something major is left undone like you know the problem is is that there's so many things i'm doing that like are just constantly rolling like it's impossible there's just never been a point in time where there isn't something in the back of my mind there or there's something that i'm kind of wondering how it's going to turn out or whatever um so i think i think just like being like pretending like it doesn't exist there have been times like for example obviously paying attention to news and social media and all that stuff is very stressful there have been times when i've had a bit more free time and i kind of look at that stuff but there's also been times where i've been so consumed with my work that i haven't looked for like three or four days and, I, and i'll miss something like really substantial that happened but i'll i'll feel kind of like naively pleasant about it i'll just be like oh yeah well that happened but it's like that didn't affect me and it didn't have to affect me uh because i got to live in a world where like that didn't happen i was completely unaware of it and i know that's like a little selfish but it was also like ah it was just so refreshing it was like yeah i'm like the world kept turning and i was able to not feel stress (laughs) that stuff really does stress me out Maybe it's a little selfish, but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people look at every single thing that comes up in the news and they try to take on that burden. Yep. At least psychologically. I mean, they're usually not doing anything about it. They're just posting, but uh No, but, but it is interesting. They do take on the burden. They're feeling yeah. it. Yep. Yeah, they're and and I don't think that there's ever been a time in history prior to this where every single issue going on in the world pretty much became something that everybody was expected to be so on top of. And uh, it's unreasonable. Actually, it's unreasonable. It, it registers in the brain as trauma. So it's actually a traumatic experience for the brain to re- receive that much data because just for the majority of time, our brains were really just designed to know, I think, a maximum of 150 people. And be aware of like sort of your local area. And then like, you know, even even a few decades back, you'd know that. And then you'd know things happening on a national level or something or world events if you were so interested. Right. And if it was a really massive thing, everyone would know about it. Right. But now, you know, everything, everything about everyone and you're connected to everyone in a way. And like it's too much data, like your brain just does not have the processing power. It's just getting overloaded. And it interprets that as trauma a lot of the times, which is why everyone gets all depressed and uh, sad with social media. That's why I don't think it's a bad thing to uh, to take a break from that stuff. Like it's interesting because I think that uh, it's not just that we feel trauma from seeing this stuff. I think there are a lot of people that impose that stuff on you too, and get super judgy about it on the internet. If you're not up on something. You kind of, uh, you kind of are putting yourself, I guess, in target range for, uh, for people's hate sometimes, which also sucks. So there's this pressure on everybody, not just, not just internally, but also externally, to stay on top of everything. Um, it's like a socially expected thing, and mm-hmm. we can say that we don't care about that sort of thing, but I think that. We all care to some degree what other people think. Uh, oh, absolutely. And we all are, yeah, and we're all subject to pressure from other people. So the societal pressure to stay on top of everything isn't helping either, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like, and it's that—that's what creates the feedback loop, where even though 
you know that this is you're probably consuming stuff you shouldn't be consuming and you're worrying about stuff you shouldn't be worrying about. You get the pressure you're like, well, got to be up on current events. So that's what I'm saying. Like there's this like when I when I kind of just forget to look at this stuff because I'm so consumed with a project or whatever. It is like this wonderful, blissful ignorance that comes yeah. out of it where I'm like, hey, I should be chasing more of that. And that's where this this off the grid, you know, kind of just disconnect for like a week or something idea is just becoming, you know, a better, and Do better it, idea. Dude. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, and the irony of this is I'd have to plan around it and, you know, whatever. But I think I'm going to actually make a serious plan to like try it and, and like, you know, just in earnest, make a, a, a very good effort to try to do it properly, you know, and not like half-ass it. I don't think there's a way for someone like you to do it without planning around it. <laughs> so I would just accept it as the, as how it has to go down. I'm just saying to where like the work doesn't bleed in and I don't make an exception. Yep. Cause like, Oh shit, no, I got to deal with it. Like I could just see how it will just fall apart. Like the the little domino that needs to fall for the whole thing to just unravel. So it'd just be very being. I what I'm saying is I really really want it to work. I really really want to see, and you know I'm even starting to bargain with myself because I'm saying oh maybe five days is more reasonable than a week. <laughs> I'll just copy you and do your five day thing. Maybe that's more reasonable. But <laughs> I want really I really, really want to try it, and I think I think it it could probably only do good for me at this point. Man, speaking of how one little domino can uh, affect it, uh, I almost did that today because I was planning a Q&A with somebody. And typically, they happen around, for the Nail the Mix ones, they happen around the 15th. So I was looking at the calendar and I was like, so am I going to take an hour to do that while I'm on this break or not? And I had to actually sit there and think about it. I was like, it's just an hour. <laughs> but no. I planned it for the 6th of October. Good for you. Not not doing it on the 15th. Good for you. It's just not happening. The end. It's the little victories. Dude, it's important because I think also what you said about uh, how we can work ourselves too hard and then not want to do it anymore. I do think that that's tough for people to understand if they're not in this sort of thing. But I think it's very, very real where it doesn't mean you don't appreciate what you've got and you don't love what you do but it means that you physically and psychologically wore yourself out yeah well it's interesting because that pretty much happened to me with the periphery like uh, a few years back now i was pretty much ready to quit touring i kind of spoke to the band we were doing a european tour i spoke to them i was, I was like i don't think i can do another tour like this and i'd like to discuss you know what you guys want to do like you know we could look at filling guitarists uh Brownie, your name was floated. But yeah, uh, you know, I, I was kind of looking at touring. I was like, I just I just felt like I couldn't do it anymore. Um, you know, I was on stage. I wasn't feeling anything. You know, we'd have like awesome crowds. It was by, by every account, a great night. Everyone else is like, oh, that was awesome. And I'm like, I feel nothing and I want to go home. And I'm like, this is also feeling very like for me, like at least you want this to be genuine, you know, um, you want there to be something there. And I'm like, man, this is almost almost feels wrong. It's like we're charging people and I'm not putting on a show. I'm not delivering what I normally deliver. And it's no one in the audience's fault. It's entirely my own fault. And I'm like, I don't, I just didn't feel like I deserved to be on stage. I didn't want to be on stage. You know, I still loved uh, the band and writing and all that stuff. But I was like, I think I may be done with touring. And I was just burnt out. 
was burnt out on a lot of things. I was depressed and, you know, there's a, a lot, there's a perfect storm of elements all sort of converging at once. But, you know, and, and luckily like my band is like my support group, like they're the, they're, they're the best people. So it's like, I think a lot of bands would have been like, okay, like let's, let's, let's figure out what we're going to do. But they were like, man, if you're talking about that, then this is a much more serious conversation. And we kind of talked about what was going on and why I was feeling this way. And they're like, look, like, Maybe you're just burnt out. Maybe you need a break. Why don't we just take a break? You know, and management was super supportive. Everyone was super supportive. And that's why we took a year off um, to do Periphery 4 and to do all that stuff. Really took our time. There was no deadline. There was, you know, it was just kind of like when you're ready to go back out. And sure enough, that's what I needed. I just needed some time off. Like it was just too much in everything. And I was just, my whole brain was just getting overloaded. Um, So, you know, that's a very real example of what you're talking about there. And like these things happen so gradually, you don't even realize it. I just thought I hated touring. And now I know for a fact that that's not the case because like I went out and after that and I was like, oh, this is great again, you know, but uh, but these things can sneak up on you. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you're ungrateful or anything like that. It's a very tough thing to explain to people because people are like, man, you're it's your dream job. Like, like, oh, suck it up. Everyone's job sucks. And it's like. Yeah, I mean, like I recognize it's. I'm very lucky to have this job, but it doesn't. But it is a job, and it doesn't mean that I'm not allowed to think that certain things suck about it, or I'm not allowed to be sad about it. At the end of the day, it is just a thing, and there's good and bad things about it, right? So, but it's a tough thing to explain to people, and that whole line of thinking made me feel super guilty for feeling the way that that I felt. Yep. So, so it was something I had been repressing for like a year, which didn't help because <laughs> it was like. I was like, no, like, you know, I've made the most money I've ever made uh, in my life. And, you know, we're touring all these places and I bought my dream car and like, I have every reason to be happy. I'm very happy. And it was like, I was massively depressed and my life was falling apart. But like on the surface, it felt like things were going great. And I felt guilty for my life falling apart and for feeling bad about it. I felt guilty and I was mad at myself and upset with myself that I couldn't even appreciate how great things are. And of course, it just made things worse and worse. And, you know, I was in denial and denial and then everything sort of came to a head. And uh, yeah, that was that was a pretty dark time for me, actually. I knew something was very wrong. Uh, And I know that I'll probably lose half your viewership telling this story, but because it's it it sounds so goddamn spoiled and it probably is. But like I, I, I remember I bought my dream car, which at the time was a, a Ferrari, like as as longer than I've loved music. I've loved cars like as long as I can remember since I was like five years old, been obsessed, just haven't been able to do much about it for most of my life. You know, <laughs> like uh, my parents never approved. You know, I didn't I didn't get a car when I was 16. <laughs> you want a car, you buy your own. <laughs> so like, you know, it was like if I was going to get it, I'd, I was going to have to get it myself. Uh, and they, of course, thought I was an idiot for getting any sort of sports car at any point in time, you know. So this was like totally like kind of my my own journey. And it was like from five. And it's like, I want a red Ferrari because I had a Ferrari F40 model. I finally was at a point where I'm like, hey, I can financially justify it. You know, my dad was like, you're an idiot for doing this. Uh, you can afford it, but you're still an idiot. You should just invest it. And he's not wrong. Uh, he's an economist. <laughs> so, uh, but I was like, yeah, like, you know, and it's a bucket list thing. This is something that like for the majority of my life, I was like, yeah, this is just going to remain on the bucket list. There's no way I'll ever make enough money to be able to justify this. Right. And I remember I got the car and that night I cried and I don't cry very often, but like I cried because I got nothing and I felt nothing. 
And it was like, it was supposed to be this thing. It was supposed to be this moment, you know, this like crowning achievement, this great thing. And I was already in a really bad place mentally. And I think, unfortunately, I was really hoping that this was going to be something that was going to like fix me or fix my life, you know? It's like a and bandaid on a chest yeah, wound. Yeah, it's exactly what it was. And it's like, why isn't this making me all better right now? And I was so disappointed and I was so... It, it was, it was, and it was like having that bandaid ripped off. It's like, oh, there's a big hole in my chest here, you know? And like, uh, it was just, it was just such a, such a weird experience, you know? It was like, oh, this is nothing. And this is just a thing. This is just a thing. And it means nothing. And I wasn't even in a place where I could appreciate it because my life was such a mess. And I was emotionally such a mess that I wasn't even in a place where I could appreciate a nice thing and enjoy it for what it was. Because obviously there's a lot of cool stuff for a guy who wants one of those things and, you know, has it on their bucket list and gets it. And I couldn't even appreciate that. That meant nothing. And this was all like sort of leading into that year. That was a tough year. Uh, and, and, and it was made even tougher by the fact that on the surface, it looked so good. You know, it looked like, like everything was coming together. Like, man, you're, you're crushing it. And it's like, I, I felt like everything was wrong and nothing was making it right. Yeah, man. And like, I went through a pretty big depression from 2016 to 18, 19. And, uh, somewhere around 2017 or 18, I got the dream apartment like something I always had wanted, like on the top floor of a building with huge windows and a balcony with the sky. Like it was awesome. It didn't change a goddamn thing. Yeah. Like I was the most miserable I've ever been in that place. So yeah. I got rid of it. I got rid of it and, uh, was, and it kind of just basically, it set me straight in a way. Cause, uh, it like snapped me out of caring about things. Now that's not to say I don't, like them i still yeah. like things but i don't care about them like that like i realize they're not gonna they're not gonna really change anything internally more than anything which is why like for example like i talk about my plan if things go wrong like i'll sell those cars happily i'm gonna enjoy them while i can have them but if i have to you know sell them all and just get like a cheap kia or something i i know i can make it through that you know like that that I am finding my happiness elsewhere. And now there are these things that enhance life, but they're not like the key to happiness. I have some of the best experiences that I have in life in a car, and I'm really grateful I get to have them. But even if I never get to have them again in the future, I'll be glad that at least I experienced it for a little bit. And I was at least in a place where I was able to experience it because if I was mentally where I was then, I wouldn't even be enjoying it right now. <laughs> so you know, that's the, that's the dance that you have to do. And it's a, it seems like a lot of creatives and a lot of people in this field are very prone to, to mental illness and depression and that, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, maybe it's just a hallmark of the creative musician or it's, it's something that that's just inextricably tied to it, unfortunately, but th it just seems to be a theme with so many people in this industry. Also, I think that if you're uh, a creative person, whether it's entrepreneur, musician, it's kind of all the same thing in my mind. What you're doing is exaggerating ideas, basically. You're taking something and making it bigger than it was before uh, or creating something out of nothing. And I think that that 
counts for everything. So if you're feeling anxiety, you're going to feel a lot of anxiety because uh, that's what your brain does. It creates more shit. If you're feeling depression, you're going to create more depression. So I think that it it's one of those negative byproducts of having a creative brain is you're creating things. You have an overactive imagination that can... I've never thought of it that way, but that makes a lot of sense. And it kind of feeds in... It's like a high-powered weapon that's just aiming in any direction. Well, it kind of feeds into the... It feeds into that double-edged sword thing I was talking about, where it's very easy to focus mm-hmm. on the good, and then you totally ignore that, like, yeah, it's also amplified. So it amplifies your creativity, where you create all these things and businesses, and it's all successful. And it also amplifies your anxiety and your, you know, all those things. And this is also where my therapist would be like, you know, you can separate those and you can make it not <laughs> amplify your anxiety and you can work on it. So it doesn't do that as much. And it focuses more on just the, the good, you know, but, uh, but that is obviously the, the, the work that's the struggle on that. Yeah. And Brown, to your point about it, always feeling like there's something missing. I definitely do believe that that's part of being creative too. Cause if you didn't feel that way, why would you create anything? Yeah. It's just part of the condition something's missing so you're going to create yeah i mean it's 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 super interesting because i forget who i was talking to but i was kind of might have even been my therapist i don't know (laughs) but like i I was sort of explaining like what it is because i was trying to figure out like what it is that i like about music and about writing it you know i acknowledge i don't think i'm a very good musician i don't think i'm particularly good at making music but i just really enjoy the process And I always give the example of video games. I don't think I'm very good at video games either, but I really enjoy playing them. I don't think you have to be good at something to enjoy it. And I I definitely feel that way about music. But for me, like, I've noticed I don't, if I'm writing something, I don't really listen to it after it's done. Like, I might listen to it a couple times, but then it's on to the next thing. And really what I think I'm chasing is, like, this flow state. And I, I think you guys know what I'm talking about. It's like every now and then, You'll be in this state where it just feels like things are happening and you're almost watching it happen and you're watching this song get created. And, you know, it's the reason I work late at night because I, I won't get phone calls or get interrupted or anything like that. And you could just live in this day and just watch this thing happen. And like, that's the dragon that I'm chasing. Like that is really, that's it for me. That's what makes me feel like I'm, I, I am working on, you know, uh, feeling, uh, feeling the thing that's missing. Of course, it's very temporary. Cause then once it's done, it's like, okay, I got to do that again. And like, it's almost like, I think I've realized it's almost like songs are like byproducts of that. Like the result of that is you'll end up with a song or an idea or whatever. But really like that is, that is the crux of what I'm chasing more than anything. Well, the actual end product doesn't even I mean, I kind of feel like who gives a shit once it's done. Yeah. It's like there for posterity and, and it's great that other people enjoy it, but like, you know, you know, that feeling you finish an album it's like, okay, three months of promo and they'll be out. And like, by the time that album's out, you're like, what are we writing this next one? <laughs> you know? Like, like I'm over this thing already. <laughs> I feel like that also, though, is part of what keeps somebody from becoming stale with their ideas is, so I think that that's also one of those byproduct things. And you can look at it as positive or negative because I know there's some musicians who do enjoy listening to their own stuff but uh i feel like always needing that next thing and not allowing yourself to enjoy your own stuff is what keeps you creating that next thing yeah yeah absolutely like i'm not like i I won't put stuff out that i'm not like proud of but like people 
people I think expect you to be like, yeah, like my music's the best thing. It's like, no, dude, like I think it's good. I think it's good for me, but it, I don't think it's anywhere near the best thing. It's like I like I want it to be better. I want to, you know, find that next level. Like I know it's there and I know there's so much room for improvement. And then when you talk about guitarists, it's like people will say like, oh, you know, you know, I can't believe you don't think you're a good guitarist. And it's like, yeah, they're guys like Tom Quayle, like Tosin is one of my best friends. Like, you know, when when you are surrounded by people who are really just like leagues better than you are, it makes it it kind of puts you in your place. And it's fine. Like I've accepted it for what it is. Uh, it doesn't change how I feel about it because I'm not actually chasing being the best at something. I'm chasing this very abstract experience of getting into the flow state and just, you know, really trying to reach that point where like music is just sort of happening. That's funny that you say that because I kind of always felt the same way about my guitar playing was people would say that to me like, can't believe you don't think you're good. And my answer would always be like, you know who I play with? Like, you know who I'm around? Like, come on. (laughs) Those motherfuckers are good. I'm just good at writing or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I think, and you know, to be fair, I think that's where my strength is anyways, is like, is more on the writing side and the production side and the, the creative side. And like, I think when I was younger, I wanted to be the best guitarist. And I quickly learned that that's not a thing. And it's also not something that I'm sort of, I have a natural aptitude for. And I actually have much more of a natural aptitude for putting songs together and like, you know, just kind of overseeing writing sessions and things like that. So that was more satisfying as well. You know when you're there. That's not a matter of subjectivity. It's like you objectively know, like, no, I'm, I'm in it. I'm, I'm enjoying this. This is wonderful. The you know? light bulb is on. The light bulb is indeed on in that moment. And then, like, all these other things, yeah, best guitarist, oh, are you amazing at this or that? Like, I could be in a flow state and writing objectively crap, but it doesn't matter. I'm still getting happiness from it, you know? Uh, so, so I think it's really about chasing that flow state more than anything. I think also it's kind of like chasing the thing you will spend the time on that's really what matters i think in the music game is if uh if the thing you will spend those hours on is being the best guitarist then cool but if that's not you then you're probably not gonna even if you like try to force it you're probably not going to put in the amount of time and effort that one of those dudes who really really wants it is going to put in no, you're absolutely right. And you see those guys who are at that level. They are putting in that amount of time. I they can't. Love it. I just get frustrated. I just like, Jesus, like, it, I just feel worse and worse about my playing the more I play guitar. Like, you know, people pra- practice four or five hours a day. It's like, dude, if I like, first off, I don't practice, you know, and like practicing is insanely boring to me. It's like, I'm like, I don't play the instrument for this reason, you know? I like to work on my chops so I could get the ideas from my head, you know, out into the real world. But, like, practicing scales and exercises, man, I have about five minutes of patience before I give up on that. And then there's people who really, really take it seriously. And then, yeah, they have the chops to to show for it. But that's that's where they enjoy it. That's where they get their happiness from. So you're very you're very right. You need to find that thing that makes you happy. You shouldn't be doing it like there shouldn't be someone being like, well, you know, you should be practicing four hours a day. It's like if you don't feel like it, then fuck that. Don't practice four hours a day. That's stupid. There is something you'll spend four hours a day on. Yeah. No, there is something. But find what that something is. And generally speaking, it shouldn't be something that you would have to convince yourself to do. Like, I'm supposed to be working on my solo album right now, right? And I am. But I'm at that point where I'm re-recording stuff, which I hate. And I like the creative part. And I was just, you know, 
noodling the other day. I was re-recording a song and it was going really slow and it was boring. And uh, I was noodling on this idea and I accidentally wrote a song. <laughs> like I accidentally spent the next five hours writing a song and it was just kind of like that same thing. I don't know if you ever played Civilization. It's just like, just one more turn, one more turn or whatever, you know? And I was like, well, uh, okay, I recorded it. I don't want to forget it. Well, I'll just program the drums real quick. You know, just, just I don't want to forget like the vibe. Of it. Well, I got the drums. I might as well get the bass. Oh, I got a cool layer idea. Oh, ew, and I totally hear this next section. Before I knew it, like I had this like four or four minute song and it was six in the morning. And it's like, that's what I spent, you know, four or five hours doing. And it was entirely by accident. Like my goal I had in the calendar was re-record this song, which did not get done at all, you know? And um, that's what I would spend my, my, my time on. So after a certain point, it's like, okay, dude, take a hint. You're not a, you're not a technician on guitar. You're, you're, you're going to focus on writing. That's where, that's where the four hours can disappear into nothing in the same way that a lot of these virtuosos probably doesn't feel like they're practicing for four hours. Probably like, oh yeah, this is, this is happiness, you know? I also think there's something very congruent about what you just told us about writing that and how you're saying that what you're going for is the flow state. So it sounds yeah. to me like you're very aware that that's your priority. And so when it hits, you'll sounds like you'll drop what you're doing to pursue it because that's the priority. Oh yeah. That's exactly what happened. I hit it. I hit it by accident. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to squander this. And then, yeah, exactly. you know, next thing I know, I'm going to bed at 6 a.m. And that's just that's just what happens. Because <laughs> sometimes I'll get like a bit of that flow state, but it'll just be like two riffs. And I'm like, OK, that's all I've got. You know, when I was when I was younger, when I was starting out more. And this is a frustrating thing. It's like I feel like I used to always be in that flow state. I always used to write a concise idea. I'd say I've got like 75 to 80 percent of a song written in just one sitting, which is like, dude, that never happened. That never happens these days. So I was really, I was really stoked. I was like annoyed with myself because I didn't get the work done that I told myself I was going to do. But I was also like, well, I can't be too mad. I wrote a new thing, you know, I still got something done. It wasn't what I was supposed to do. And unfortunately, the work I was supposed to do is busy work that feels like work, which I don't like to do. So then I feel, I don't feel, I feel much less, much more guilty about doing the fun thing that was creative that doesn't feel like work when I had the annoying things scheduled you know yeah but you followed your stated priority so yep what's there to feel guilty about uh i'm working on that with my therapist as well because he agrees with yeah me, but <laughs> in the doth days before we had a real lineup and it was mainly me and the other founder there were times where since there's no one else to think about i'd just sit down and write the whole song start to finish or me and him would sit down and write the whole song start to finish once we had a real lineup you know and it was like the band that people ended up knowing and i had to think about their input that really never happened again because i wouldn't allow myself to go there uh so i think there's something to that yeah and actually in line with that you know uh when i write with jake and mark for example then we will write like collectively we will write uh an entire song in like a single sitting and you know having the other guys it's the reason why it's taken me so long to do a solo album is i don't particularly enjoy writing music alone that much anymore like back in the day i didn't have much of a choice but now i have way better scenarios where it's like i've got these people i could collaborate with that have like i have the best writing chemistry with and like they're there to solve problems. If I'm ever stuck, one of them is going to have something, you know, and it's going to be like, oh, this is great. Like, I know exactly where we could go with this, you know, 
Uh, so writing with them is the easiest thing. And it's actually pretty challenging to write by myself where I have no one to b- bounce ideas off of. No one, even sometimes all they're doing is giving me a yes or a no. And it's like, that will save hours of, of torturing myself, I guess, like wondering like what I could do, what I should do. It's, it's, so it's actually a challenge to do this solo album without that. So, you know, I think maybe that's part of it as well as like kind of like, oh, I'll just wait until I'm with with those guys to finish up this idea. You know, I'm sure they'll help me solve these problems. I feel like most of the time, at least for me, it's easier to write better when there's a collaborator I have great chemistry with for that exact reason. That sometimes when you're writing, you just hit a wall of like, you just don't know where to take that thing next for whatever reason and they might just say one thing that unlocks it for you but if they didn't oh, say yeah. that one thing oh yeah you just sit there on miserable basically no i mean like i think i think a good writing partner is the best cure to writer's block like that that's that's how you solve that problem i agree so this is where the chemistry thing comes yep, in play because exactly like, i i'd say the grand majority of people out there i don't have that with but like with my band members and, you know, with, with, with Mark and Jake, like, you know, people are always like, Oh, three guitarists, aren't the egos all crazy in there? It's like, dude, like we get into this flow state, the three of us that beats anything that I do on my own. It's like, it's a feel the energy in the room and the excitement, you know, it's like, it just bounces between the three of us and we're just trying stuff. And like, it's why I love writing periphery stuff with those guys. It's why I say like writing a periphery album is the easiest thing in the world because it doesn't have any of that, you know, it's constant questioning and, and whatever. It's like you got it. It's so simple. It's like, do we think it's cool? Yes. Cool. No. Can we fix it? Yes. Cool. Let's fix it. No, we can't. OK, let's ditch it and move on to the next thing. That's the flow chart. That's it right there. And eventually you end up with a periphery album and it feels like you've just been playing video games with your buddies the whole time. <laughs> you know, Like it's uh, it, it's a really special thing, but it's entirely the the chemistry. None of us are the best at our instruments. But together, we definitely form something that's more than the sum of our parts. Yeah, Brown, I just think maybe you just haven't had that kind of chemistry with somebody. Because uh, I can, I've experienced it too, and it's awesome. But I've also experienced the opposite, where writing with somebody feels even yeah. worse than writing alone. Well, I'll tell you, it's a, man, it's a mindset thing for everybody, and it's not something that happens by default. Like, we had to work to get to this, but everyone else had to be willing so here's the reality is like if you're collaborating with someone and you're bringing something to the table, you're bringing you. And it's very hard to separate your ideas from I'm, I'm, I've had this. Everyone has had this in, in the band and I'm sure outside and whatever. So you bring an idea and it gets rejected or cut and it feels like they're cutting you and you suck as a musician and you suck as a person. You know, it's very hard to separate these things because a lot of what you write is like it's yours. So you're emo- it's emotionally charged. So learning to, you know, and this can get into really petty things because then it's like, oh, well, you know, they cut my riff. Well, you know what? That riff's not so great. We're, I think we should cut that. You know, it could turn into these petty, petty arguments. But if you have people who really uh, want to work on it, like you can put the work in and we did, it took a lot of time, but then we eventually got to a point where we're like, look, like this is not about you. Like we're all on the same team. We want a sick sounding song. It just so happens that we agree on what makes a sick sounding song for the most part. So that's step number one, where we got kind of lucky because 
people will disagree on that. Maybe, maybe it's just that you don't see eye to eye. Uh, but I got lucky and we do, or at least there's a framework within we, what we do. And that is what makes periphery periphery and not another band. And then on top of that, like everyone taking a step back and just being aware, like, Hey, if your riff gets cut, it's not a personal thing. It's just, it didn't work, but you're going to have riffs. You're going to have ideas and it shouldn't discourage you. And that's again, very easy to say, but, but eventually you, you get the hang of it. And then once that's out the window, then it's like pure creativity because you can just suggest and cut and, and whatever. And it's like, I have these two other minds to work with and I don't have to worry about like, Oh, am I going to offend Jake or offend Mark? If I cut, it's like, no, I've taken, Mark has like come with like a crazy, crazy riff. And I've taken like one little section of it and we've crafted a new riff out of it. But then like everyone's stoked and it's like, okay, so that, that, that made something that wasn't there before. And now this is for the band. And it's not about like, Oh, why is Misha always editing my stuff? You know? Um, so, so it's, it's a mentality thing. It's something that I had to, practice and, and get comfortable with. And it, it was difficult, but eventually we got there and it sounds like maybe I'll tell you, man, like I wrote with Ollie and that we butted heads, like it didn't work, but because he came to me kind of un, expecting something out of me that I wasn't going to do. And I was expecting him to be in a, a certain place. And Ollie's like one of the most talented guitarists, like he's scary on guitar and his ideas like blow my mind. Like, like he was coming with such great, great ideas but we weren't clicking just because our expectations were different. And we've talked about it, you know, uh, like I was still really glad they came and it, it was great to hang out with him. But like we, we were talking about like how we should try it again, but then really understand like what we're both expecting from it, you know, because I think we could actually get it. But that's an example like where we just have to make sure that our expectations are on the same page. And actually, there's one thing that we did write kind of on a whim with no expectations. And that came together really, really easily because it was like, it didn't have that pressure. And I think he had a lot of pressure attached to his stuff. He was overthinking a lot of stuff. And I thought we were going to kind of just throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And then when we did, because it was like, ah, well, we've already given up and this is just for fun. Then like something amazing came together. So, you know, it's about sort of just finding that rapport that will work for you and, and the people you're working with. How long did it take with Jake and Mark? Years. Years. I mean, like the first album I did is basically just me periphery two was the first time that we tried to collaborate. And like, there was a lot of butting heads and there was a lot of like, Oh, you cut this, I cut that, you know, but we talked about it and everyone's introspective and everybody's willing to kind of take a step back and work on it. And, and juggernaut after that, like we kind of, we worked a lot better. And I'd say as of periphery three, periphery three and periphery four were literally some of the most fun experiences I've ever had. And they're sort of the benchmark of what I've, I chase for flow state and feeling good. It's they're the reason I love writing with my band because it was just on, it wasn't just Mark and Jake. It was everybody. Everybody came together in a way where it was just like, yes, 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 yes. You know? Um, and I feel like we're still refining the process. Like periphery four was my most favorite experience creating music ever. I think one of the biggest killers of bands is, how shitty they are at communicating. Yeah. It sounds to me like that's the thing that you guys seem to really have down is how good the communication is. It's something that we made a priority very early on. Smart. Actually, if you have a problem with someone, like talk to them, set some time aside and talk because give them the benefit of the doubt. Because so many times we have problems where it was like, yeah, you know, they're being like this. I'm like, talk to them. They're like, no man, like they're, they're not going to want to hear it. It's like, 
you're answering for them. You've decided what their answer is. And guess what? Like pretty much every time it was the opposite. And I've made this mistake too. I've had this mistake made against me. Everyone's been the problem or, you know, the, the, the one complaining or, you know, whatever, like we've all been in that position or, or both positions uh, and it sucks, but there is an idea that like the band is bigger than any of our, our bullshit. And at the end of the day, we all love each other and we're friends and we don't want to, we're not trying to make anyone miserable. So if you're not trying to do that and you're doing something that is affecting someone, you have a conversation, most likely the answer is going to be like, oh shit, I didn't realize that I was making you feel bad or whatever. I'm going to work on it. You know, as long as you do that, as long as you see an effort, like obviously we're human, it's not gonna be an overnight change, but as long as you see the effort from there, it's like, well, they're trying, you know, that even if they slip up, it's like, well, Hey man, they're trying, you know? And everyone in the band I'd say is very introspective, very much aware. Like they need to work on themselves. There's stuff to work on and we're going to improve individually and as a unit. And the only way, like, I, you know, the kind of rule is like, well, you know, if you have a problem with someone and you don't tell them or you're not having a conversation about it and they continue behaving that way, that's on you. How, they're not mind readers. How the hell are they supposed to know that, that you have a problem if you're just going to silently let it fester over a tour and it, and fester is what it does. And then before you know it, you've just got this like galvanized resentment, which is really hard to address. So you know, now we're just at the point where we just talk about stuff and understand like, yeah, if you talk about it, it's going to be fine. It may suck to talk about, but it's going to be okay. It's complicated, but you know, I, I'd say I got very lucky uh, with, with, with my band members, you know, I love them to death and we have a dynamic where we can, we can improve. So our communication now is great. It wasn't in the beginning. This is a lot of work and it is not something that happened naturally. I can't tell you how many times like we've, we've had some like rough fights and stuff like that. But like when push came to shove, everybody was willing to put the band first and take a real, real close look at themselves and what they, they can do to make the situation better. And that's the reason that, that we are where we are, uh, like as a unit, you know, communication is the And I know this is, it's like marriage or like relationship or anything. It's like the most cliche thing, but my God, like it is the single most important thing for us. Well, a lot of people, say it that's why it's the most cliche thing but to actually do it i think that yeah communication is uh it's more of a verb kind of yeah yeah uh whereas a lot of people don't actually when they say that they don't entirely mean it i think but uh it does take active active work well, the way i put it is like it's easy for us to talk about it right now and like you know just you know, use it like in a rhetorical way. Right. But when you're pissed in the moment, when you're sitting, seeing red and you're not being entirely rational and the other person's not being entirely rational and you're all worked up and it's week three, a tour and you're frustrated and hungry and tired. It's like in that moment, you need to believe it enough to where it's still, <laughs> you know, it's still, it's like, yeah, communication. That's the answer. When every fiber of your being is like, no, it's not. Fuck that guy. You know? <laughs> And that's, that's the actual challenge. So yeah, uh, you know, as you said, it's like, it's a verb <laughs> more than anything. It's something that needs to be treated like it needs to be actually used in the moment when it counts and not when we're just talking about it and everything's great. <laughs> that's why it's so challenging because uh, Absolutely. in the moment you're overpowered. Well, not overpowered if you're, if you do this, obviously you're not being overpowered by your emotions, but in the moment 
it's most natural to get overpowered by of course. Our emotions. Of course. Something we have to train not to do, basically. We're only human, man. It still happens, you know? Uh, but, uh, and like just giving the benefit of the doubt to, to the people you love, you know? Like just giving them that, that uh, a little bit of leeway, being like, well, this is the person I love, this person I know I care about, I know they care about me. They're probably not trying to just be a dickhead to me for some re- or for no reason, you know, like, so just giving them as much, being as charitable as you can in the moment, you know, which again is, is hard sometimes, but is usually the right, it's the path to, to happiness. I think it's really, really important to choose who you're close to very wisely, whether it's your band members or the person you're dating or business partners. I agree. Because that is going to happen. They, yep. They're going to fucking piss you off. It doesn't matter who it is. They're going to piss you off. And they're going to also get the epicenter of whatever the fuck is wrong with you. Sure. So knowing that that's going to happen, uh, you have to have a foundation there where you actually do love and respect them or else it's going to get destroyed. Because I think even when uh, when someone is out of line, if the relationship is strong enough, all it takes is talking about it later, and it's usually okay. Oh, yeah. This is exactly what I'm saying. And what happens is most of, like, not most of the time, but this is the mistake we've made, and I see a lot of people make this mistake. Instead, they don't have the conversation. They make assumptions about what's going on and let it go for weeks, months, and what happens? It festers, and then their idea of this person turns to this weird resentful version that's evil and that like just wants you know and the other person might be entirely unaware because they haven't even they they might be doing it but they don't realize it's a problem so they just continue doing it and it's just such an ugly thing and like as you said like it might be an uncomfortable conversation but it's over quickly and it's like oh shit okay well now now i won't do that you know better yeah it's really that simple it's like shockingly simple how often have you actually met malicious people i haven't met that many like there's a few there's a few it's it's rare it's not that many it's It's rare rare. and this is why i say like you got to especially with people you care the the chance that someone someone that you got really close with is malicious i mean is a sociopath or something like that i mean it's happened occasionally but no the major the data shows that it's not the case so that's why i'm saying like you know give them the benefit of the doubt because most likely they're not being malicious it's either they're oblivious or they're malicious and probably they're just oblivious oblivious or just being human like people can be mean i think without being malicious when they're just yeah. even though the act of being mean can cross over into malicious territory sometimes they're just reacting to sure. something a misunderstanding something not even oblivious but may, you know maybe they are consciously being mean but it's uh the intent behind it is different than if it was coming from a sociopath or a malicious person and so when you let those things fester and you change your opinion of them and start to turn them evil it's kind of a distortion of reality but it is a realistic human thing to do so it's important like i said to choose who you're going to get close to so that you don't want to do that to them. Yeah. Well, I also, you know, having a, like having a guy like Jake in the band, like Jake is like the Zen master of this stuff. Sometimes like I see how he deals with people in like, in like tough situations sometimes and like just how charitable and how willing he is to sort of offer them like the best perspective. I'm like, man, like I've, gotta be more like that you know and and he's just like yeah man like you know everyone's got their shit everyone's got their perspective like 
no one thinks they're being shitty, you know? And it's like, I love that. I love the way he thinks. I find it personally very hard to, you know, integrate that in the moment. Uh, I'm going to get better at it, but uh, <laughs> he's very good at it, like in, in heated moments. Uh, and I'm not, but I, I want to get better at it because I love that. I'm just like, that's awesome. You know, it's such a healthy way to look at it. And it's and it's actually probably an accurate way for the most part. It just doesn't feel that way because my brain's all weird. Well, it makes it easier to give people the benefit of the doubt. Yep. When you realize that. Yep. Absolutely. And I think all this stuff is just sort of being aware of it and like reinforcing it so that when it counts, you can <laughs> sort of feed that in and be like, oh yeah, remember what we talked about? <laughs> so when you're seeing red, it's kind of like the, the, the thing pops up in your head, like chill, give this yeah. person oh, the Oh yeah, there's the like definitely like the angel it's and the like devil the breaks, on the shoulders the duking turn. it out and the, the devil <laughs> usually wins, but the angel's doing, doing its best, you know, it's like, hey... <laughs> Hey, this is that moment. This is that moment where we prove ourselves and show we learned our lesson. <laughs> At least the angel's there. That's uh For now, right? That's a good thing. <laughs> for now, right? So we've got some questions here from our listeners for you. Oh, I don't do like questions. ask you. All Goodbye. Right, fuck it. Then. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so here is a question from Jonathan Davies, not from Corn. Oh. I was hoping. I'm sure his life's just as complicated as Jonathan Davis's life. So it's still, it's still fine. Yeah, it's still fine. So you've got great business aptitude for the modern music industry. Keeping that in mind, where do you see Periphery go next? Oh, that's an interesting question. So I, I think one of the, the best thing that's been able to happen with, you know, with, with the businesses and me sort of making a living outside of the band is the band has just sort of become a passion project. Like, I don't rely on the income at all. I don't really know how much we make. I think, ironically, we're actually making more than we've ever made because we we own the label now and like we own the the rights to our masters and all that stuff. But it's not a focus at all for anything. So deadlines don't matter. Touring, like none of that stuff matters. And it's really just about pure creation. And that's kind of why I started. I know that's probably why you guys start. I know that's definitely how Brown started as well. It's just, we're just a bunch of idiots like posting on forums, just making music. Cause you could, it's like, Oh, I could do this. You couldn't do this before. And it feels the most like that right now. So I think like that is more that's the, goal. the ideal. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a passion project. Again, it's a hobby and I want it to be that way. And I think with it being a hobby, there's no real expectation. Like I mean, I guess if people stop going to shows, maybe we'll play less shows, but I can't. And as long as the guys want to keep writing, I want to keep writing. Like that's the, that's my favorite thing. Uh, second favorite thing is going and playing, playing awesome shows. But if that stops, I'll still want to write, you know? So, um, I don't really know what's going to happen, but I just hope it stays a fun passion project. I hope it has the ability to just stay a fun passion project for as long as possible. All right, question from Sid Silverstring Studios is, Hey, Misha, what do you feel is the process for a new musician in the metal genre to get noticed in this day and age when social media is overrun, the old forums are dead, and Spotify is an ocean? It's really tough. I'd say the one thing we can't do right now is just tour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's tough. I mean, you know what? Uh, though, though now that people can't tour, I'm sure you guys uh, have seen and maybe are taking advantage of it, but everyone's Twitch streaming or li live streaming, seeing people get very creative with that or build up a YouTube channel, um, you know, just find some other way of, of uh, interacting, connecting with your audience. 
Um, it may not be. I think one of the things I learned early in this in this industry and in life is, you know, it's good to have goals and it's good to have ideas and it's good to ha have things that you're going for and chase passionately. But don't be afraid to pivot and know when to pivot. Like yes. the truth is, if you really look at me right now, I'm more of just a businessman than a musician. Like, like mu the music thing, it's still actually more like, oh yeah, I do music in my free time. If you really look at like how I make my money and what I do uh, and how I treat it. And that was not my dream. So in a way I failed because my dream was to make a living from making music and be a rock star and be on tour all the time. And the truth is like, I didn't succeed at that. But what I did have was opportunities that sort of allowed me to create a life for myself where I'm happy. And I was like, Oh, I actually enjoy these things. So I think you should be open to other opportunities and other things other than maybe your ultimate dream and see if you like them, because I actually like this arrangement more, but I wouldn't have thought that at that point in time, I just had to be open to try it out. And maybe a lot of these people will actually do a really killer YouTube channel and maybe they won't be touring as much, but they'll, they'll have YouTube recognition or whatever. And like that can be their thing and it should be okay to pivot or they'll have a really good Twitch channel. And I just wouldn't want to see someone like have potential for that and be like, well, that's betraying my original dreams. Like, yo, you've got this adapt, like just be ready to pivot. If something comes or you, it might be like, even like, oh, I never thought of doing this this way. And it's working. Just go with it, man. Like it's tough to it's tough to make anything work in this life and in this industry. So if you can get anything going, just chase that <laughs> if it makes you happy. You know, uh, I actually think that it's uh, there's a psychological component to pivoting, but I completely agree because I mean, my life is a giant pivot, and uh, I didn't see URM happening either when I started out. But it's like the best decision I've ever made. But there's it's hard to make that pivot when your whole identity is based on one outcome. So you need to, you need to do the work to be okay with it. Right. This is a guitar question, but I, I think it's something important from Michael Forrest. I saw you at a guitar clinic in Glasgow a few years ago where you talked about retraining yourself to hold your pick differently as you felt oh. it was holding your playing back. Yeah. What prompted that change and how did you identify that as a weak spot in your playing technique and how did you go about actually doing it? Or alternative question, have I made that up completely? No, 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 no that's, that's entirely accurate. And having Nolly in your band, <laughs> who plays bass and is the best guitarist and has like the most flawless technique and tone, you know, he'd be showing me licks and whatever. And I'm like, I just can't make it sound right. And I realized it was like the way he was holding his pick. So, I mean, uh, I realize people can't see it, but I never took lessons. So when I grabbed the guitar pick, I sort of just intuitively grabbed it the way you'd grab a lot of things, just like between my thumb, uh, middle and index finger, it's just sort of resting there. And it's not on the side of your index finger, which I guess is the, the way you're supposed to do it. And what effectively happens is it was attacking the string actually the opposite way. And it was giving it a bit of a dull sound and it was making it so that alt picking and a lot of that stuff was kind of awkward. I noticed it never had the even sort of uh, attack or even timing. Like a lot of the trim stuff and all that was just sounding kind of like uneven and lazy and it didn't really like attack the string the right way. And for the longest time, I mean, I, I considered it part of my sound. So I was like, oh, well, you know, it's maybe something good to learn. Uh, if anything, maybe I could just learn to play some Nolly licks or exercises or whatever, just sound more like a like a regular guitarist, you know. 
it would change my sound, I thought, in a way that was better because I've never liked the way I sounded as a guitarist. I still don't, but I especially didn't back then. It was just something I brute forced my way through. It sucked. It took about a year and a half because I just learned the guitar. It's like relearning the guitar in a way. Like, thankfully, just one hand. The left hand didn't have to change anything. But, like, um, what I would do is live, like, pick a few sections. Like, there's a song we had... uh, uh, 22 Faces, which had like a trim pick part, which I actually had an Ollie track on the album because I thought it sounded better because <laughs> he was using the right technique. And live, I forced myself to do that. And that's just like an open string. It was like I'd give myself places in the set where I was like, okay, I'm going to switch this technique. And I would like get into the routine. There's something about like playing something every night where like no matter how difficult or weird it, it, it is, like I'm sure you guys can relate, like after about a week, week and a half, it just becomes autopilot. So like that was sort mm-hmm. of like like forcing my brain into like like hardwiring some some semblance of it. And the idea at that point in time was like it'd be convertible. I'd switch between the two. And I was pretty good at switching between the two stances, if you will, right? And then eventually I got so comfortable with it. Uh, I think this was around Periphery Three. That I was like, all right, I'm gonna make a commitment to track everything on the album with the new technique you know and if there's anything that sounds better with the old technique i'll just track that that way but as it turned out there was nothing that sounded better with the old technique <laughs> everything sounded better with the new technique sound the way i wanted it to sound and at that point i was still converting between the two at live shows and whatever but actually the first few tours after that i remember playing those songs was challenging because i was playing them for the first time in a lot of ways because you know, palm muting, everything, your hands a different angle. It's like, I had to relearn how to play these songs that I'd known how to play, how to play them live, how to play the solos with a new sort of stance. Right. Um, so yeah, it took about a year and a half before it became my default. And now this is how I play. Actually, the old way feels weird now because it's been a few years, but, um, it was just one of those things. I was just really unhappy with how I sounded on guitar. And I was like, well, you know, I always am unhappy with how I sound on guitar, but he was like, okay, here is a direct solution to fixing it. And I could already hear when I was just doing open strings with the, with the others, the other, um, the correct picking technique that sounded better. So I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to go for this and we'll find our way out the other side. And it took way longer than I thought it would, but now I'm really grateful I did it. The reason I asked that one was because, uh, this is one of the number one things that, I uh, would get guitar players to change in the studio, like the pick they were using, how they held it. It's such a major factor in the way that you sound. Oh, yeah. And it's something that a lot of people overlook. Oh, absolutely. Well, anyways, Misha, I think this is a good place to stop it, but uh, it's been awesome catching up with you. It's been a minute. Yeah, man. 